We're back for a bumper show this week at the Emerging Cricket Podcast as we talk Challenge League, Women's Under-19 T20 World Cup, the retirement of legend Kevin O'Brien, and developing news from UAE. As always, the show is made possible by our Emerging Cricket patrons. From as little as $2 a month, you can help the cause by becoming a patron. To sign up, log on to patreon.com forward slash Emerging Cricket. Before we get into this week's show, a developing story from UAE after we recorded... In a shock move by UAE ahead of the T20 World Cup and Asia Cup campaigns, Ahmed Raza has been scrapped as captain. Raza kept his ODI captaincy, though the T20I reigns have been handed to batter CP Rizwan just three days before their match against Kuwait in Al Amarat and two months before their T20 World Cup campaign. Rizwan comes into the role having played just seven T20Is, scoring just 100 runs at an average of 16.66. UAE feature on the opening day of 2022 T20 World Cup action, meeting the Netherlands in Geelong in Group A of the first round. We'll discuss the fallout of all of that news on next week's show, but for now, plenty of action around the emerging cricket world on this week's show. Welcome back. The boys are back. The Emerging Cricket Podcast, live and direct, uh, online and on Sport FM in Perth. The three of us are together in the one spot, albeit virtually. Tim's just, well, he's on his way back to Vanuatu via New York and Vancouver. Nick is settling in in Iceland. I don't know who to talk to first here. Quite a few stories going on between the pair of you, obviously together during the latest Challenge League leg on the Vanuatu side. Uh, who wants to kick things off? There's uh, quite a few things going on in the lives of the pair of you. Who wants to uh, jump in? Well, as you say, I've I've uh, settled in in Reykjavik. Been sorting out some administrative uh, issues. Uh, seems like bureaucracy is more or less the same in every country. I know uh, Vanuatu had a bit of a run in with the Canadian system. Uh, we can talk about that in a second. But uh, yes, uh, it's very exciting to be here in a very cold, rainy rock in the middle of the North Atlantic Ocean. Tim, you're in Sydney, just up the road from me, on your way back to Vanuatu after Vanuatu's campaign at the Challenge League in Canada. You've been around gallivanting Vancouver, New York, now back in Sydney for a couple of days before the flight back. Sum up the last couple of weeks in the, in the life of uh, Vanuatu cricket CEO. On the field, things weren't great, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. There was a few hurdles, uh, but you guys looked like you had a, a great time and, and some international cricket long awaited for a team uh, like Vanuatu after the pandemic of course yeah as Lenny so eloquently uh, cheered as we won that first game in Malaysia over a thousand days I'm not sure are there are any other international men's teams that have gone that long or at least within the kind of ICC's 50 over leagues anyway so yeah not great on the field and yeah I'll really look forward to talking about that later thanks Bez but uh, no it was a well it was basically a month since we got on the plane. It was the 16th that we jumped on the plane in Port Vila and, and three weeks in Canada. It had its challenges. You know, our captain, Patrick Matatava, didn't get there in the end and I'm bitterly disappointed about about that process and the, the lack of communication and assistance throughout. But um, there's not much that can be done right now, uh, only to try and make sure these things don't don't happen again. And hopefully that's to take into account when ICC make decisions about, about hosting in, in future. Amazing experience for the players, you know, for us to have five debutantes in that first game against Malaysia. Look, I'm, I'm not sure about how many 
countries have, have gone into a game without many debutants in a match that isn't the nation's first in a certain format. So that was amazing. And I, I'd, I'd hoped that that would start a bit of momentum. But unfortunately, although pushing it in the next two games, it was a little sort of, it fell off quite sharply. But an amazing trip in general, I think, for the players to be getting down to Niagara Falls and getting to a Blue Jays game and seeing more of the world. It was just great to be part of that. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, I've been gallivanting. My daughter was over in North America. She flew from the UK by herself. We had three days in Toronto and three days, almost four days in, in New York. And that was both of our first time to New York. So took it all in, did all the all the sights, ate all the food. And I think we walked about 60 kilometres over the course of that week in Toronto and in and in New York. Yeah, so see what the, when I jump on the scales, when I get back to Vanuatu to see how I, I feel about that. But uh, no, as, as we record now, yeah, it's evening, Sydney time. And I've, I landed in Sydney more or less 12 hours ago after a flight from you know, LaGuardia, New York to... Toronto, five hour wait in Toronto, four and a half hour flight to Vancouver, two hour wait in Vancouver, and then a 15 hour flight to Sydney. So um, I've spent a bit of time on, on, on planes. So I think, I'm, I think I'm going okay for jet lag at the moment. You can ask me tomorrow, but I had a, a bit of a nap today. But uh, I'm just dealing with a few tech issues because during the course of the last four weeks, um, my phone has uh, stopped working. It's currently blinking a white Apple sign as it's trying to turn on. So that means I can't access WhatsApp on my phone or other coded things there that you know bank accounts and whatnot that I get in via that particular phone only and my laptop is having an issue where the left click just doesn't work so I've got to restart the whole thing but um, during one particular game um, a coffee cup blew over onto my brand new laptop keyboard so um that's 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 fun and then uh, my airpods stopped the right one stopped charging oh no so uh, they're sort of next to next next to uselessness now so i'm after spending so much money in the last couple of weeks <laughs> and look i've not seen my daughter face to face for six years so it's not about the money but it's like just adding on top of that and someone was saying to me oh you know apple does you know 24 month financing I was like, i'm not worried about that it's the fact that i have to pay it back <laughs> yeah it's not like it's 24 months it's like yeah and i'm sort of pay for it so but I think one of the pleasures of being on a tour like this especially with the, the with the team from Vanuatu is it kind of I think helps you you, you you see your perspective about certain things and a few little tech issues uh, as compared to the experience that I've just been part of the sort of pretty low low priority but uh, no Bez it was a, an amazing trip and I was sort of thinking despite having lived different places around the world and having different homes I think it's the longest I've ever been away from home so when I eventually get back I'll have been away for five weeks so it'd be weird to see how I feel when I get back uh, because I've never been away for that long. Mr. Worldwide, Tim Cutler, we just need him uh, in some rubbish sunglasses and to shave his head and all of a sudden he becomes Pitbull. <laughs> well, I, I, if I keep getting balder, I'm going to be shaving my head. Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> how, how far are you from the Lenny treatment? <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And that's just it, you know, being on the trip and, oh, geez, I'm having these tech issues and there's Lenny having to go get urgent medical advice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, things could be a lot worse. So, no, I'm, I'm good, Bez. How have you been? Good. It was also good to have uh, Lenny finally make his Emerging Cricket podcast uh, debut on the uh, trip as well. Just yes. a, another voice and a voice that so many associate cricket fans know from uh, the work on, on the various streams around the place. But oh, I was incredibly envious of both of your travels. Uh, Nick as well, seeing Nate in uh, North Carolina and, and visiting him. Nate and I talk 
a lot on WhatsApp, but yeah, I've never been within about, you know, 12,000 kilometers of, of the poor guy. <laughs> uh, you guys looked like you had an absolute ball living out one of my vicarious dreams of going to a major league baseball game. Nick managed to uh, get the minor league treatment as well. I think I saw, which was uh, good fun as well, but yeah, here, not a whole lot to report. Just working that nine to five over the last five weeks or so, not a whole lot has really changed. Uh, a fair bit of uh, international cricket to watch on the streams and you guys being a part of that as well. It's actually been quite hard to keep up with everything going on. We've had Netherlands in, in Super League. We've had uh, Ireland and Scotland host people on their home summers. We've had League 2. Uh, the Challenge League will get to topics we haven't talked about over the last couple of weeks. Indonesia qualified for the Under-19 Women's T20 World Cup, and we'll talk about that. Uh, Scotland as well, uh, just securing their path. And then 2024 qualification for the Men's T20 World Cup is already underway in Europe, and, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail a little bit later on. But let's wrap up. You guys in Challenge League and, and that Challenge League led Canada uh, with a two-win lead from Singapore in Group A. On the other side, Jersey securing the spot for the Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff after their last home leg in Jersey. And we will talk about that next. But to start with Group A, yeah, a couple of frustrating things to, to begin, obviously with the visa issues affecting Patrick Madaltava, as you mentioned, Tim, but also a couple of the, the Danish players too who didn't have their full complement. King City from the outside didn't particularly look like the best facility for international cricket and I don't know how much we want to go into that but Canada looking odds on to take that Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff spot from Group A how do you guys kind of assess the the end of that leg after you know obviously being a part of it well yeah you you talk about the facilities and that's one place we could maybe start on the organizational side which was um yeah a bit chaotic stuff wasn't organized until the second or third day's play and yeah the the facilities i mean you know the exposed rib cage of you know drainage pipes sort of around the ground and uh, yeah we we lost a number of overs in the canada vanuatu game where you know the sun was shining it was a beautiful day but we couldn't play because there was rain yesterday and the drainage is so poor and yeah i mean having you know a couple of tents as the changing rooms and basically a kind of an attitude that there were a few fans who came in um we saw phil milky travel all the way up from the u.s to have a look at the vanuatu game which was which was great and we managed to get him some vanuatu merch as well and uh you know the icc busybodies i guess were kind of making life difficult for the very few people who did wander in to have a look and yeah i don't know i I think on the organizational side there was certainly a lot that was left to be desired on in terms of play on the field again the the last minute organization a lot of these tracks were pretty raw uh the first couple of games and then they flattened out and they were actually very good to play on so i'm not sure whether they could have maybe uh prepared the decks a bit better or, or a bit more you know in advance but Anyway, in terms of on the field play, yes, uh, Canada definitely dominant, comprehensive winners in every match. Uh, they never really looked like losing. There was a bit of a wobble against Vanuatu, which we, we can maybe talk about in a minute. But um, aside from that, they just were a class above. And I mean, I'd certainly make the case they probably shouldn't be down in the Challenge League after that game against the USA in um, in League Two a couple of years ago. Um, but, you know, we don't need to relitigate that. The thing about Canada especially was somebody always just stood up with bat or ball. Um, you know, we saw Heiliger 
and Zafar both get five fives. Um, you know, Rommel Shazad in that game against Vanuatu. Jeremy Gordon, who is certainly erratic, but was deployed very well. On the batting side of things, Dalywell moved up to second on the um, Challenger League run charts. You know, Nicholas Curtin, who I've been critical of in the past, and I don't know, I would say I wasn't 100% convinced, but he did score a ton in that game where uh, Canada were in trouble. So, you know, credit to him for that. Harsh Tacker, who's kind of in the, I wouldn't say second tier of players, but, you know, he, he didn't play every game. Um, you know, Salman Nazar, Saad bin Zafar, um, Mova, Ravi Singh's back in form. You know, guys always just contributed and got Canada up to a, a very good total with the bat as well. So I think basically Canada are the team to beat and I can't see anybody else catching up that two game lead. I, I, I can't see where they're going to drop two matches in the next series in Malaysia. And I think one of the other stories is of course, Pudu Desanaika coming back as coach. And I think he's made a big difference to this team. His tactics were spot on. Uh, I think his use of Jeremy Gordon, who, as I said, can be erratic, but at this level, having a guy steaming in at you know 140, 145 clicks is a powerful weapon, and he deployed that very effectively to to kind of soften up the the batters and and you know prize out wickets. The game against Vanuatu, Salman Nazar being pushed up when they were in trouble to to act almost as a night watchman. That was that was a clever move, and then uh, retired him. Well, there there was a bit of conjecture about this. He was officially retired, hurt. Yes. But he, he was sprightly when he came out to warm up to bowl. So, <laughs> and, and he was he was not allowed to bowl for a certain length of time, which would indicate that he was retired hurt. But it was yes, it was nothing more than a tactical retirement, which should have just been what it was, because then he wouldn't have been stopped from bowling, because he could have said right, retired out, and and off you walk. But anyway, yeah, that was just one of those little edgy moments of the game. So he just starts putting his hands on his chest, and oh, he's he's sick, so he walks off. Yes, he got sick the instant he reached his 50, yeah. uh, which was a very convenient timing. Um, <laughs> and then Ravi Singh comes in and just starts booming sixes. But yeah, man. Yes, well, uh, yeah, that's the thing. I, I thought it was quite strange that they bothered with the pretense because I see nothing wrong with tactical retirements. And, and it was a good tactical retirement because, as you say, Ravi Singh came in and had sort of three or four overs to just really unleash. Uh, which was a very good use of him in the batting lineup. Whereas, you know, if he had been coming in with Canada at four for not much, potentially Ravi Singh would have been... Not, he's not really the batter who's, who's best suited to, to that position. And, and Nazar's more defensive technique worked really well. So that was clever. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the kind of uh, sneakiness uh, or attempted sneakiness there. But anyway, um, but yeah, so I guess Canada... As, as is often the case, um, the, the team on the field is actually very good and the problem is more the administrative side of things. The, the tournament being run by Cricket Canada was just, yeah, n- not great. And from what I've, I've heard, speaking to a few people around, Hubadu basically took the job on condition of having 100% control over the team or the men's team at least and zero interference from the board. Um, so I think if they can manage to keep out of his way, He'll do a pretty good job. Hopefully, this um, this arrangement uh, continues. Yeah, that caused ripples, uh, of course. Prabhu Dasanaika's appointment for Canada, basically resigning for Nepal and then signing with Canada in a matter of moments officially. I'm sure there was definite overlap there. But Manoj Prabhaka comes in uh, as Nepal's head coach and, and the jury's still out as to what will he bring to the table from a Nepali point of view. 
Pabuda having that kind of autonomous role in the team and the selection, I think actually probably bodes well for a situation like Canada where we've probably heard in the past where the board and, and other outside parties have had probably too much of an influence on things like the national team and, and things like that. And we know that he has a pretty decent coaching record, you know, no matter where he goes. And their situation is a good one. They're on the way to getting that playoff uh, spot as the top spot in their Challenge League group. We don't know a terrible lot about... Uh, the playoff itself, there hasn't really been a, a press release, especially after Jersey winning the other side of, of the draw. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Just going through, I suppose, the other teams at the tournament and, and probably a bit of a report card on, on the rest of them, guys. You were obviously there and, and saw everyone up close and, and, and with great scrutiny, I'm sure, Nick. Just to start with you, the likes of Singapore, Denmark, who are doing the chasing, Qatar uh, and Malaysia. Where do you kind of put everyone after that last leg? Yeah, I mean, Singapore dropped two games, which is basically sunk them in terms of catching Canada because they were on, on level pegging with Canada coming into this leg and you know having lost to Canada and then to Denmark, they've, they've really fallen behind and Denmark could potentially even leapfrog them in second place, probably won't do enough to, to catch Canada, as, as we've said. But yeah, Singapore, I mean, they're still, they're still a good team. And we talked about this a bit you know, while we were in Canada, but you know, there's still a number of exciting young players coming through. Rohan Rangarajan, Prakash Uchil with the ball, uh, Anish Param in the middle order. You know, they, they have quite a good team. They just don't have that X factor, which Tim David provided, and they've, they've fallen back a little bit. Yeah, I think that game, especially against Vanuatu, you know, Tim might be able to talk about this a bit as well, but they looked very beatable. They weren't, you know, that they just don't have that kind of aura about them anymore. And Vanuatu would be quite disappointed at missing out on that, um, or, or as as any other teams uh, would be. Uh, you know, Qatar probably could or should have beaten them as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think realistically, Singapore are out of the running. Denmark have, have really impressed me. They looked a bit mediocre back in 2019, but, you know, winning four out of five, yeah, they lost the first game against Canada, but then they won the rest of their matches after all their challenges with, you know, visas and, and whatnot. Um, Freddie Clocker breaking his leg, just a, a few, you know, problems like that. But, uh, yeah, I think they've they've looked great. And, and you know, Nikolai Damgaard and, and Hamid Shah, other guys kind of pitching in around them, but those two, obviously Damgaard's gone to the top of the wicket tally and, and Char's at the top of the run tally. So they've kind of propped up the team, but you know they've had enough other guys just pitching in here and there to, to really make up the, the difference. Going through, yeah, Qatar, they're sort of a bit anonymous, a bit of a bits and pieces team, um, but you know they, they did just enough in the right moments to stay out of trouble. Vanuatu, again, we can get to, but um, Malaysia were... Probably, I mean, they were definitely the worst team here. Very disappointing, really, when you looked at how well they were playing against Singapore in the T20s that they played before this. It just seems like they don't quite have the mentality for 50-over cricket because they do play a lot of T20s, and, you know, that's a problem for a lot of teams at this level. Um, but, you know, they, they do have some good players, like obviously Virandeep Singh, Anwar Rahman, Amir Azim, and, and Syed Aziz all showed plenty of talent, but they just weren't quite consistent enough. And realistically speaking, there were just a few too many kind of mediocre teammates who, who weren't pulling their weight. Um, there were some weird decisions. Um, is is Syed Aziz really Malaysia's best opening theme bowling option? I mean, I hope not. He's, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's handy as a kind of first or second change bowler, but if he's your opening pace guy, yeah, I'd be asking some questions about where the talent's coming through. And, um, yeah, as well, some, some, yeah, other kind of weird decisions like Azim batting down at number seven and eight 
and I don't think he even played all the matches, despite as Lenny uh, was was complaining about a lot on the comms. You know, he's a class bat. He scored, I think, 70-odd in that uh, heartbreaking loss to Qatar, where they almost got over the line. But yeah, they're hiding him down at number seven, and he didn't bowl. And yeah, I don't know, Pavandeep Singh kind of didn't bowl that many overs in a couple of games, which is also strange. So I'm not quite sure what was going on with Malaysia, but they certainly didn't help themselves, even though... They, they were struggling. And I guess um, rounding out with Vanuatu, who obviously was the team that we uh, both spent a lot of time around. Yeah, very frustrating tour, I think, all up. Um, and that was just for me watching. I, I can't imagine being, you know, one of the guys on the field. A lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda. The guys clearly have the talent. As you mentioned, five debutants in, in that first game, you know, that they, they are lacking in experience. They're very raw, but I don't know. They just they just didn't quite have the the wherewithal to, to really push on in, in spots where they had an advantage. You know, they had Canada four for, I think, 30 or 40, but they didn't have that edge to really cut through and expose the tail. And then, of course, they batted quite poorly in, in the chase. Uh, there, was, there was that match against Qatar, which, if we're being harsh markers, they probably should have won that. Uh, Junior Kaltapau going very well. Jared Allen got out in a way that he probably shouldn't have. Uh, you know, there were a few guys who just, in that chase, gave it away when they were looking like they were batting pretty comfortably. The last game against Singapore, they really looked mentally checked out they just yeah and that's a, a potentially a, a stamina or you know just a mental endurance thing in that they haven't necessarily obviously half the team haven't played any senior international cricket and you know by the end of the tournament they were just maybe a bit bit out of it and you know they'd lost the steam that they had you know in the first match against Malaysia which as you said first game in uh, nearly three years and and they've just kind of run out of puff a bit which yeah again against Singapore that was entirely winnable and that would have pushed them up into a much better position to try and avoid the relegation zone as well so that was especially disappointing. Yeah it was a tough one you mentioned that last game against Singapore the team had sort of hoped that Pat was going to be there and we'd talked about the sort of tactical selections and around fitness of knowing that we're playing our last two games in consecutive days our only consecutive day games to go Canada and then Singapore which coming into the event was you know your two hardest matches but then it was evident as the tournament went on that Singapore sort of looking like they weren't quite as strong as they'd been but yeah from that moment as you mentioned I think when Canada were 40 for 4 after being 23 for 3 and really on the ropes and the fact that they sent out as you you said a more or less a a night watchman uh, well what would you call them now a night a night watch <laughs> sent out the night's watch um to, and it, it, and he batted really well in the circumstances, and that's how you bat when when you're that many down on a, on a wicket that's doing a little bit. You know, of course, it'd been wet, and Vanuatu won the toss and, and put Canada Canada in. Had done everything everything well. A bit of luck had gone on the way as well, with perhaps one decision with Matthew Spores being strangled down the leg side when replays indicated it may have only touched his leg. But pretty much everything from that moment on for the next 24 hours went against Vanuatu, and not not necessarily against. You know, some of it was self. Uh, self-inflicted as well but for Nala Nipico to do a groin in that bowling innings and um, Apo Steven as well who'd been I think our best bowler just in general and just such a warrior his knee just gave out uh, that was he was already struggling with so that meant no Nipico no Steven for the last game against Singapore and then no Patrick either um, was just a real I think body blow the only way really describing it so I think that the the lack of fight that you saw, I think, was was understandable considering the situation. But there was a shining light, I think. You know, you mentioned it in the previous podcast, but was Junior Kaltapa, you know, 21 years old, making his debut for his nation as as vice captain, and 
just looked like he, he belonged at this level, if, if not higher. And this is a, a kid, I can call him a kid because I'm almost twice his age, but a, like a kid who really thinks about the game and maybe almost thinks about the game too much, but in the sense of how well prepared he is, how he plans his game and how he approaches it. And I think there's, there's big things coming for Junior. Um, I think we're trying to arrange a few overseas slots for, for some of our better players in the men's and women's teams over this Southern Hemisphere summer and that gives them a chance to grow even more. That'd be that'd be great too. But I think that's that's one of the bright spots out of that for Vanuatu. But yeah, I think you described it pretty well as a coulda, shoulda, wouldas because there were just so many of those key moments or as you look back became key moments because things went against Vanuatu or Vanuatu dropped a catch or just didn't didn't push through at those times. And you know, there's a combination of factors I think contributing there. The gap since the last international cricket or being able to play of any meaningful cricket outside the nation but there's also other other things that can be worked on which in some ways is good and you know as you spoke to the team afterwards saying how the potential that that is out there on the field for Vanuatu you know there's the bigger gap is for us looking at the the skill level potential versus what's actually being executed and I think that's something that that coach Ben Cameron I'm sure will be excited to work with but it's one thing having that potential if you if you never reach it you know it's a matter of how we actually convert that potential into performance uh, on the field and you're you're only going to get that with more consistent play but also with some some adaptations and some changes to how they apply themselves in in domestic cricket and and training but um, yeah well, I'm glad you were frustrated because if I felt like if I was just sitting there being frustrated, people wouldn't believe me because, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you, you are a this, nervous this. watcher, Tim. Yeah, yeah, I am a nervous watcher. And you, you've now seen that, you know, in different places. But um, I got better. <laughs> I got better. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that point about the potential and the, I guess, the ceiling for Vanuatu, I think is much higher than some of these other teams. I kept making the comparison with Denmark, who the impressive thing about Denmark at this tournament is how they wrung every drop of talent out of what they have and, and they managed to win four out of five. And that was a great example of the opposite of, of Vanuatu, who have oodles of talent, but aren't really quite utilizing it as well as they could. And at this level, you know, your attitude and, and your discipline can make a huge difference more so than necessarily your raw talent. And we saw that with Denmark. I think, yeah, Freddie and Hutch, which sounds like a, an 80s buddy cop movie. Does. Um, but uh, yeah, Freddie Clocker and Paul Hutchison, who was officially there as a bowling slash uh, assistant coach, uh, was sort of promoted to the head coach job uh, through necessity after their head coach, Keith Dabengua, former Zimbabwe international, was denied a visa to come into Canada, uh, as well as, as you said, there's a couple of their players uh, having visa problems too. Yeah, so Hutch had to kind of step in and, and Freddie Clocker, who was carrying an injury, didn't play but ended up basically acting as the assistant coach. Um, so I think those two guys, Freddie and Hutch, did a fantastic job. Uh, we, we spent a bit of time uh, with the Danish guys and, and they're just great guys and, and they, they love their cricket and very committed to the associate cause as well. But yeah, poor Freddie. He, we found out later that the injury he was carrying was a, a fracture in his... Um, in his leg, but in the the thrilling game they played against Singapore, he he jumped up and celebrated, and then when he landed on it, it just snapped, and um, yeah, he had to be rushed to hospital for surgery, and uh, so that was uh, yeah, that was not great, but yeah, I, I think full marks to Denmark, you know, on the way they overcame the adversity throughout this tournament. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, and I was really happy for them for the results that they got. Yeah, we thought we were poorly treated or at least uh, not supported the way that we thought without with Patrick not being able to get his passport in time even though his visa had been 
approved. You know, to not have your head coach, two of your players, one of whom will seen internally as one of the stronger players in the side. And still to this day, I think they haven't been even given a, a determination or any feedback whatsoever from the Canada authorities about the visas. You know, a certain head coach of Singapore didn't arrive, former Pakistan captain, but you think there might have been other complications there that may have made him getting a visa troublesome. Like a criminal record. <laughs> uh, yeah, which I, I would assume you would have to declare. Yeah, Malaysia didn't have a, a their assistant coach as well, um, wasn't there, and although they had said themselves that like, they did apply late, um, it wasn't just the fact that his passport was, was from, say, a Pakistan or an India that he got held up, but... I think um, I think there was only one country that didn't have any visa issues affecting their squad, and they went through undefeated. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's interesting how these things work out, isn't it? And it's funny when they're also the host. So, pretty frustrated about that. You sort of mentioned King City facilities, facilities that we were, you know, given to to warm up on prior on the on the the other grounds, and I, I call them zo- the zombie wickets on the edge of the. <laughs> edge of the square that you just water and roll and then bring it back to life but it's never quite a real a real pitch I think I might have mentioned this on the bus so apologies if I'm using my zombie wicket quote again but um, yeah it was a tough old slog there I think if we're playing on field number one you had the dressing room and tea coffee facilities and all these other things if you're playing on over on the second field it was it was like playing kids cricket again with a couple of marquees up but apart from that everything was um, you know it had to be shipped over to you just lucky we had the the portal lose that we were within QE but you know, it was interesting when you talked about how it was set up for spectators. It was basically set up for no spectators. It was like a closed event. Yeah. You know, you talked about Phil Milky being there and him setting up originally between the two grounds, which why wouldn't you? You were at a, at a ground with two matches going on concurrently and he got shooed away from that centre region because it was a quasi-PMOA area, player match officials area. And, yeah, look, the ACU's probably got one of the harder jobs in cricket and trying to control these situations but probably didn't need to be pushing out the one fan <laughs> a fan had driven five hours to get there in time to watch the match meaning they had to sit on one side of the field and then try and watch the other one on, on his stream but just talking about about ACU there it was it was interesting that as, as far as I don't think I'm telling you state circuits here I think it would have might have been mentioned either way if, if it had been different but apparently there were no no corrupt approaches made whatsoever during during this event and um, after seeing the, the ICC kind of send out 12 emails about the men's team's future tour programs and that being 12 more press releases than were sent during the Challenge League, <laughs> I, guess, I guess that's what, what happens. You know, if you don't, don't promote an event at all and you don't tweet about it and you don't do anything, you know, maybe that's the way to keep the corruptors away. It was a little bit disappointing to see, you know, Zimbabwe. I can't remember who Zimbabwe was playing T20Is, but I should know because that was always at the top of ICC TV and it was being tweeted about during the match. I remember um, at a pre-streaming time, we used to get told, well, it's very hard for us to, to tweet anything to, or to, to put anything on social media because we don't have any assets to share. You don't have any photos or any media. You know, there was an official photographer there and there's this multi-million dollar stream that's set up. So there's no excuses to not be someone be clipping highlights and various bits and pieces. It was quite, well, I guess good that there were no corrupt approaches, well, apparently, but also pretty disappointing that, you know, it was very little 
little bit being said or reported on despite the investment that's been made in, in trying to stream the events but I think it sort of just went the, the tone of the, the event itself you mentioned that things being set up day two and day three it seemed as the days went on more Canadian flags got put around <laughs> the ground which I don't know it's got to be one of the first international events I've been to that had exclusively flags put up by the host country of their own nation whereas you know we were all asked to bring our flags that kind of adorn the, the player tents but it just felt a little bit weird that they, every day we got there it's like they'd multiplied. It was like gremlins. <laughs> it had uh, it rained overnight, and then the Canadian flags had spawned another five, and then they were just all around the around the field. But yeah, well, you know, I've heard so many stories about King City and the, and its drainage. Um, <laughs> And I guess we didn't get to see the drainage so much in action this time because thankfully the rain didn't have any effect on it, on any results. But now I've seen King City in, in, in all its glory. Well, yeah, and just, just on that point about pushing the fans away, it is kind of a recurring theme in associate cricket. And it, it, cricket just shoots itself in the foot sometimes with these things. Uh, I was talking to Nate when I was over there about um, various matches that were sort of mooted to be played at Morrisville, which as we all know, and, and as I've seen with my own eyes now, is, is a, a brilliant facility, just a really nice ground uh, with, with, you know, great facilities and, and uh, a good atmosphere. Anyway, um, the, the one of the kind of reasons for not giving some matches to Morrisville is basically that USA Cricket were afraid that they would get too many fans in and they didn't want to have to organize security and, and logistics to keep everything moving. So basically, in a lot of cases, these boards view fans coming to watch the game as an annoyance rather than, you know, why they exist. So it's 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 a very backwards attitude. But um, yeah, it, it's pretty common across associate cricket, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing sometimes. I feel like associate members don't help themselves, but in saying that, I definitely think there are places that, and definitely from from above, where you know there could be more attention on a lot of this as well. Um, and again, it it kind of goes back to what drives us and how we started and why we started is is because we were meant to try and fill that that void of associate cricket and, and emerging cricket coverage and just. Glad to be back talking to you guys. I don't want to get too sentimental, but it's good to be be talking about this and to keep it in the semi-public consciousness. I know that we're in an echo chamber at times in, in emerging cricket, but yeah, just finding the, the, the new fan who stumbles across something like this, it, it is crucial that we, you know, we, we cover the previously uncovered. Let's look at the other half of the Challenge League draw and it's a congratulations to Jersey topping the group and moving on to that Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff which we'll hopefully hear about very soon uh, via a press release as we, we kind of alluded to before. Pretty solid at home. It was a three-horse race for, for most of the competition and it got to the, the business end here and it almost seemed as if Jersey were the last men standing in a way. Uh, Uganda fluffed their lines against Kenya which cost them Hong Kong towards the back end of the tournament as well. Uh, we'll probably lament their display. Uganda put up 397 against Hong Kong in a match that ultimately didn't mean anything with Jersey having such a superior net run rate. Again, solid at home. Uh, full credit needs to go to Chuggy Purchard and his team playing in very familiar conditions. We know what Farmer's Field is like. is Jim Purchard's ground, I think. And they made the most of, of the home conditions and were, were quite solid. Uh, looking at the, the rest of the group, Bermuda didn't really trouble anyone uh, in the competition, and, and we know about that. Italy had their moments, definitely, as well as the likes of Kenya, Hong Kong, and Uganda, as, as mentioned before. But yeah, Jersey just a little bit too good uh, in this competition. 
Yeah, we talked about in the last leg of uh, the Challenge League B group, which was played in Uganda, and that Jersey, certainly at this level, are basically a complete team. You know, they have guys all up and down the order who can do the job with a bat. They have a variety of bowlers who can provide different overs in different conditions, spinners, seamers, uh, what have you. So they're more or less the complete package, and that showed, and they were just the best team by by some distance. Uh, Hong Kong especially would be disappointed because they had a very good series only a couple of months ago in Uganda, and they've just really faded down here. You know, obviously they got thrashed on the last day by Uganda, who were chasing a very improbable um, catch up on the run rate. But you know, losing against Italy, I think Hong Kong really should have won that game. They put up a a, a pretty good score. Against Jersey, 280 odd with Nizakat Khan scoring 127 not out, uh, and then Jersey basically cruised home three down in with a couple of overs to spare. So after that, it's sort of almost like Hong Kong gave it their best shot, and then it wasn't enough, and then they just fell apart after that. Yeah, Italy beating them, um, and, and then being thrashed by Uganda. There, there were a few bright spots. I mean, Haruna Shard took seven for 31 against Italy, and uh, Nizakat scored a ton against Hong Kong. Azaz Khan was in decent form. Kinchit Shah put Bermuda to the sword, but, I mean, Bermuda have their own issues, <laughs> as, as we're aware. Yeah, I, I'd say probably Hong Kong are the most disappointing because they were genuine contenders and then just really fell by the wayside. Uganda also would be kicking themselves for their match against Jersey. They, they put up 266, which is not too bad, but they were a bit sluggish early on. They, they probably could have easily got to maybe 280 and, and made a bit more of a game of it. But yeah, again, Jersey just too good. Slipping up against Kenya, I mean, they're only chasing 173 and, and they bowled out for 136. So that's really not good enough if you're looking at uh, you know, the relative quality of these two teams and Kenya have struggled for a long time now. So, yeah, I think Uganda have really only got themselves to blame for, for missing out and they couldn't make up the difference even though they put up nearly 400 against Hong Kong in the last day. Interesting, isn't it, when you go back to the start of the second leg of Challenge League B and how Uganda will lament that slow start on their home soil. And you think when they had a perfect five from five in Oman and then slow to start on home soil and slow to start here again. You just wonder if that's something for them to go back and look at because, you know, after Oman, we're thinking, geez, who's, who's going to catch Uganda the way that they're playing? And then to see the way that things panned out and a little bit different to Challenge League A in that they got to play these two almost back to back. I look at you just to, to talk about Uganda. And I know some people out there might sort of form this narrative and say that, oh, look, Uganda were by far and away the best team early and, and they faded and, and they gave it away. But I think, one, I think the overall talent of, of Jersey eventually shone through. And I, I actually think that Uganda in, in general, I wouldn't say they overperformed, but I would say that they're definitely a, a team that's still on the rise. We saw them achieve some pretty good things against the likes of Namibia and on other tours and in other tournaments, qualifiers, etc., there might be a narrative that people think, oh, they might have choked being in such a, a good position at the start of that challenge league. But I think if you, if you look at that team, it's definitely one that's on the rise. You run through that list and, yeah, we know about the eternal Frank Unzebuger at times who doesn't seem like he'll ever retire. I think he turns 42 in a matter of days, which is incredible to think. you know. But the likes of Henry Sanyondo, uh, Simon Cesarzi with an unbelievable 100, they hit 18 sixes in that last game against Hong Kong between himself, Dinesh Nakrani, I think, Rezat Ali Shah, Arnold Otwani as well made 100. And then you have the likes of Frank Hakan Kwaza and Juma Miyagi coming through into that team. 
I think the biggest indicator of a, of a good side, especially at this level in Challenge League, is who are some of the players that are being left out of the team. And you look at a captain like, you know, Derzadet Muhammuza, who was actually out of the side with injury, you know, early in the Challenge League, and they didn't seem a bad side without him. Uh, and yeah, with players coming in and out, they always seem to be performing at a at a pretty consistent level. So I think, again, the rise of Uganda is definitely a storyline that we'll probably see more and more. And we know they didn't get the, the chocolates on this occasion, but, you know, talking to, to other people involved in African associate cricket, all they, they talk about and all they want to talk about is the development of, of Uganda and, and where they are as a team. You know, unfortunately, to look at, you know, the other end of, of the scale, you know, a team like Bermuda, there's definitely a lot of soul searching and, and things need to be done on that side. But, you know, when you're a nation of 65,000 people, it's going to be very hard to pick up the pieces. And again, we don't really know what's going to happen in terms of this this relegation and how teams are going to qualify for the next cycle of whatever the ICC are going to conjure up. So it's it's an uncertain time for, you know, people like Bermuda and those, you know, wedged at the, at the bottom of the Challenge League tables. Yeah, Bermuda, especially disappointing. I mean, as you say, they're playing pool probably is the limiting factor here but you know it just looks like they've stopped caring even someone like Kamal Levrock who looking at the stats he was in I was sort of there or thereabouts for both runs and wickets got 20 wickets over the course of the challenge league uh, scored 463 runs at, at an average of 30 a uh, strike rate of 120 um, which is you know that's that's pretty good for an opening batter but the problem is there's nobody else for Bermuda to follow up and so it's just the Kamal Levrock show uh, and yeah, as we said, five debutants played for Vanuatu in their Challenge League match, but I think Bermuda might have had five debutants in one of their games in the previous leg in Uganda, which is a bit strange because, you know, they, they do have some senior players who could do the job. And I don't know what's going on. It just seems like Bermuda have, yeah, as I said, stopped caring. And, and that's disappointing. Even from an administrative side, you know, looking at the Bermuda Twitter account, they're kind of more interested in their domestic cricket and some stuff they're doing there with their T10 competition that they're starting for women and various other things, uh, which, yeah, I mean, it's good that they've got a lot of domestic cricket happening, but at the same time, you know, their, their national team should be probably more of a priority, I would have thought, but yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, disappointing. Um, yeah, um, maybe maybe just a final shout out to, um, to Gareth Berg for Italy, 34 wickets, Top of the table for the Challenge League B side of things. No one else really close. Summer Aura from Jersey, the next best with 26 wickets. But uh, yeah, Berg's been immense for Italy. Unfortunately, no one else has really been able to pick up the slack for Italy. And um, yeah, they've, they've just missed out. And they'll be going to the uh, relegation playoffs, assuming everything continues as, as we were originally told it would. And a member of the coaching staff uh, with a little bit more free time on his hands, I think, in Kevin O'Brien, who's called it a day in international cricket. I-, I think we'll talk about that in a second. Should we talk about under-19 women's T20 World Cup qualification? Because there's been a couple of huge news stories over the past couple of months, and, and we haven't really had the chance to sit down and, and talk about them in great detail yet. Scotland winning the three-match series against the Netherlands to take the spot from Europe. We'll get to that in a second. I think arguably the, the biggest storyline in all of this is Indonesia's historic win to secure their path for their first ever global event of any type in international cricket after their three match series against PNG winning that the decider in pretty tense circumstances it was an 18 year old bowler in IU uh, Kunayatini possessed nerves of steel went into the final over with PNG needing just two runs to win took two wickets at the end to to win the game actually with the first two balls in fact to, to secure the spot uh, again first 
time ever at a World Cup at any level, whether it be men's or women's, or uh, like this one, the inaugural under-19 women's T20 World Cup, which is in South Africa. Next year, USA qualified automatically due to being the only team uh, eligible from the region. And yeah, as mentioned before, Scotland qualifying as well. We might get into that too, but it's a pretty historic moment for a team like Indonesia. Again, it's a 16-team tournament, so there's there are plenty of qualifiers coming out of the continents and the regions, which is good to see and, and going towards the global pathway. But Tim, I'll start with you as you look a little bit tired and we, we might let you go to bed in a little bit. Uh, Tim, as someone who I'm sure has probably cast an eye on, on a team like Indonesia, whether it be you know during your work in, in parts of Hong Kong and, and Vanuatu and, and working with other associate members, you know, seeing something like this happen is is incredible for the sport, and and there's a lot of untapped potential in not just in Indonesia but in that region. And we've seen places like Thailand and and places in the Pacific Isles develop the women's game. This is just another another tick and another nod towards the uh, the growth of the game in that region. Yes, and another one that's leading with a sort of female first prioritisation at a high performance level. I sort of see Indonesia as maybe the first Thailand version two. So it'll be interesting to see, of course, with Indonesia coming through the East Asia Pacific region rather than Asia, where they would run into the likes of Thailand and, and UAE, how this team progresses. But uh, they've got a great management team there with um, Afi, the, the general manager, who's spent some of his time, I think, university days in, in, in Australia. But they've got a new facility there. And, you know, if the numbers are to be believed, remember from when Nick interviewed uh, the president of the Cricket Association about how they've already got you know 60,000 people playing it's just a matter of how that that grows you know we talk about how Malaysia has found challenges at a high performance level I guess for us to see in a sort of a similar region wise you know country to see how Indonesia can turn those numbers into potential performance on the field and I think we'll get first crack to see that in the under 19 World Cup um, look we may see a huge gulf in talent between the, the top top sides and the and the associates coming in but it's going to be an amazing experience for Indonesia and hopefully get some good press there but um, but like I said it's great to great to see another another country that's sort of going lead, leading with their their women's program or at least in the sense that that's where the success is coming and then hopefully we'll see more investment there in the, the senior women's team too. Yeah, Indonesia is an interesting one, as you say, um, good participation numbers, but where to go from there in terms of pushing those through a, a high performance program and probably the comparison with Malaysia is, is quite a good one because obviously it's a, um, a similar part of the world, but also, again, just, just getting those people who play the game recreationally or, or in schools or whatever, you know, finding the talent from there and, and funneling it into a high performance program is a, a very different challenge to, I guess, getting kids to pick up a bat and ball. Um, Bali is, is sort of an interesting part of this in that, you know, obviously there's a, a lot of connections with Australia there and they do have some facilities. I think this uh, these matches were played in Bali, actually. But yeah, a lot of uh, Indonesians who've sort of picked up cricket um, from the, you know, the Australian connection or have sort of gone to live in Australia for a time and come back or Australian expats who live there and have tried to set up uh, some, some tournaments. So um, it'll be interesting to see how much that kind of influence uh, can spread throughout the rest of Indonesia. And obviously, I, I know Vanuatu has a lot of challenges with being an archipelago and, and connecting potential talent throughout the country from all the different islands. Indonesia, you know, 
they have even more islands than, than Vanuatu and obviously a lot more people, but you know, they're one of the potential targets for the ICC, I, I think, in, in terms of uh, the population size and, and the, the growth potential. But uh, yeah, a lot of similar logistical hurdles in terms of connecting such a diverse country and, and getting them all kind of pulling in the same direction. Looking across to the Scotland side of things against the Netherlands, it just shows, I guess, that the, the gap in quality still exists for, between Scotland and the Netherlands on the women's side. The women have historically been a weak point for the KNCB and, and they do have a lot of work to go on developing that compared to where their men's team is. And I know Rod Lyle actually has, has done a bit of work with, with trying to get you know women's junior development uh, coming through and, and, and there's a lot of challenges in the domestic Dutch system on that side of things. So yeah, I mean, looking as, across at Indonesia's success and, and the KNCB struggling, maybe you know, they could think about reallocating some of their... I mean, I know their funding is limited, but you know, if, if they could try and push the women's game a bit more, it might actually have a bit more of a, a return on investment, especially with the Super League being cancelled and, and the men's team sort of at a bit of a loose end. I think it potentially is a good time to you know reassess and, and refocus. And just to piggyback on that, Rod wrote a, a great piece on, I suppose, the comparison between Scotland and, and the Netherlands at the under-19 level and, and what European nations are doing it, developing on that side of the game. So implore anyone to to give that a read. Quickly, just going through, I suppose, uh, a couple of things as we move late into the city night here. Nick's just getting uh, a spring in his step and, and running in off the long run as he moves into his Icelandic uh, day. I look at, at Tim when it's late at night and a, a, a jet-lagged Tim Cutler is, is struggling. So I'm hoping to get through this at, you know, a decent enough pace for him. But I suppose a sad day, a day that we knew was probably coming given the situation and his non-selection in the in the Ireland T20i team. Uh, Kevin O'Brien announcing his international retirement, doing it on his terms and, and making the announcement before anyone else could get in or anyone screw up the news. Uh, yeah, a, a big day in the life of, well, a, a big day in Irish cricket and, and a good time for us to sort of go back and reflect on someone who played such a big part in one nation's rise from an associate power to eventually moving into full membership, debuted for Ireland in 2006, only called it a day 16 years later, has been at the forefront of several of Ireland's successes, working sort of his way back. We've got scoring the first century in Ireland's uh, inaugural test match, going back further, looking at something like Bangalore and still the fastest Cricket World Cup century of all time, making 100 off exactly 50 balls against England in 2011. Uh, Just running through some of the records, first and only Ireland player still to make a test century, only Ireland player with a century in all three formats of international cricket. 2013 ICC Men's Associate Cricketer of the Year, uh, he sits as the leading one-day international wicket-taker for Ireland, third most ODI runs for Ireland, second most T20I runs for Ireland, took a wicket with his first ball in one-day international cricket of Andrew Strauss, has the highest Cricket World Cup partnership for the sixth wicket, that 162 that he put on with Alex Cusack in that famous victory, uh, famously on the EC potty, called it just a bit of crack, which I felt was hilarious considering there was an incredible World Cup result in the offing if they were to get it right. Fourth Island men's ODI captain, second Island men's T20I captain. It's pretty hard to sum up, you know, just everything that he's done in the emerging game. And he's still giving back now, as we said, as as an assistant coach in the Italy setup. 
Uh, he's worked as a mentor in Estonia as well. Was there with them during their 2024 qualification for the T20 World Cup. So he's still doing a lot of things. He runs his own academy as well. He has teased the idea of potentially umpiring in the future. He told that to us on the pod. And again, for anyone who wants to go back and listen to that story, we have it in two parts. So you get just about all of it. But yeah, Tim, what, what a career and someone that, Everyone in associate cricket holds in a very high regard, and wherever he goes next, I'm sure he'll he'll flourish most likely in the in the coaching uh, sphere. But just an unbelievable career, and and someone that I think really epitomised what associate cricket is all about: the hard work, but also the camaraderie and, and, and just the way that he carried himself uh, in a cricketing sense. I think is is quite admirable, and yeah, should be congratulated for for all of his his work in in cricket. I've summarise it really well there Bez there's not too much for me to add but I think you know people you can really tell what a person is made of is, is how they were spoken about by their opponents or when they when they leave a conversation I've never heard Kev ever spoken about with any kind of any tone or anything he, just the way that he he applies himself in the field but who he is off it as well he's just a great ambassador of the game in general you know if he was in another in a, other countries that he may have played a lot more matches and in white clothing as well and, and who knows but we can only be thankful for what we got to see him in playing green and with a green hat I guess and, and, and white clothing he's said the uh, the first test century well I guess he, the fact he's one of 11 in, in the first test match his, name, his price would be pretty short as compared to others who weren't in the test match but I don't think you would have had him pegged as your uh, as your first test match centurion for Ireland but yeah just bat ball the attitude you just exactly as you said the, the, the hard work that he put into it and the way that he, he took games on as well that fearless approach really did sort of set a tone for the way that Ireland played or I think even to this day that you sort of think of Ireland and the way that they play cricket and you really do think of Kevin O'Brien the way that 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 he plays I think it's still still present tense I don't think he's hanging the bat up yet but um, sorely missed Um, I think it's plain to see I think from the even the tone in the first couple of sentences that he probably still thinks he's he's good enough yeah so in that sense that you'd like it to be almost a joint decision when they've had a conversation and someone gets to retire and 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 have a farewell I think I'm not not a big one for those sort of choreographed farewells but I'd almost think that he's done his time to be able to to go out at his choosing and that's a little bit emotional they need to be winning cricket games but it's just sad that he's not going to be able to do that but look he's just been a great for Irish cricket it's just funny to think where cricket in Ireland would be uh, if not for Kevin O'Brien yeah absolutely a a pillar of strength for a decade and a half and he he was there that whole journey of Ireland moving from a an associate to a leading associate to a full member and he was a huge part of that I think one of the things about O'Brien that you sort of touched on their team was the way he played the game and and you know his attitude to the game of actually trying to win and you know not just settling for oh well we did pretty well to get there kind of thing which it was sort of more the attitude towards associates maybe um up up until Ireland really getting into gear I, th- I think O'Brien did a, a huge amount for associate cricket just in general to be taken a lot more seriously and for associates to be viewed as competitors rather than just a kind of a novelty that oh look there's some cricketers from this random country and oh isn't it nice that, that we get to see them once every four years at a world cup you know as opposed to that ireland were were serious contenders in in to win a lot of the games that they were playing and that difference has been a huge step forward for associate cricket and and how it's kind of perceived in in the cricketing world and o'brien is a, a big contributor to that i guess in, in terms of the timing and whether he had more to offer i, I would 
probably agree with that. I think he's, I mean, especially you look at this Irish team, even if he's not in the best 11, he's certainly uh, one of the next cabs off the rank, you would think. If if someone goes down with injury, I'd probably make the case that you could you could fit him in the eleven. Um, and and this Irish team, it's quite funny, really. Yeah, they've basically gone unchanged for the whole summer, at least in the T20 format. And it, what what's that saying to the other guys around? You know, not everybody's been performing consistently throughout that summer. So is is that just kind of them saying? You know, nobody else is getting a look in. This is a team we've got. Deal with it, uh, which which I'm not really convinced about. So, yeah, a bit of a shame the way it had to end. But, you know, he's been a great servant of, of Irish cricket and cricket in general for a long time. So I, I think we should certainly appreciate that. And hopefully he continues to give back to the game, as you say, Bez, either in a coaching capacity or, or, or something else around Irish cricket. I don't want to be too self-indulgent here, but... I'm a di- if, oh, he, go on. if he doesn't come to Australia during the T20 World Cup, I'm going to be really upset. I think one of my life goals is to just have a session, just talk about everything that we got to sit down and talk about with him for a couple of hours. And, and again, if you haven't heard the, the two-part special with Kevin O'Brien, you, you've definitely missed out because the stories are there. And Nick, you mentioned it. He was an entertainer. Even He even said in that in that chat to us that he thought about the broadcasters and the people watching on TV and in the stands thinking, well, we've got to give this Bangalore game a crack here because you know I don't want us to just fizzle out and fade away. If we're going to have a go, we, we might as well start now. And between him and, and Alex Cusack, John Mooney, they took the power play, I think, 20 overs before the end of the innings. At one stage, they were 400 to 1. You know, the, the bookies had them at. They were 5 for 111, I think, chasing 328. And yeah, came out and started well and just never lost that that touch over the course of the night. And just the, the camera angle is just showing Andrew Strauss just bereft of answers, <laughs> sweating in the Bangalore night is just one of the best things I've ever seen. And, and I think it's unanimous between the three of us. I think he definitely had something to give in that squad. A look at that team and they're still not quite at a point where they've kind of made this team their own after the golden era that Ireland had for, for so long. And we know there are a couple of really good young players coming through. Harry Tector and Gareth Delaney in the middle order are electric at what they do with, with the bat, but there's still questions. They didn't have a great T20 World Cup last year, and I don't think any of that was was down to Kevin O'Brien's individual performances. And when he didn't make the squad for the qualifier at the start of the year, we thought, you know, that's probably it. You know, there's no real coming back from that. But again, you look at that squad and, and you've got to say, and yes, they did qualify in the end and they were pretty strong. But yeah, look at that team and, you know, on a squad of 15 or 16, he's the perfect person to have in that situation. Just a really cool head. If he doesn't make the 11, I don't think he would care that much. He would put his arm, you know, around the shoulder of, of someone to mentor and and be that person as a sounding board and, and really help the, the setup and... I think eventually that's you know probably something that he'll be doing with the Ireland national team, but at the moment he's he's taking his talents elsewhere and seems to be doing a pretty good job and and everyone again holds him in in high regard. So we wish him all the best here and I suppose being a full member we're, we're probably talking about him a little bit too much, but he's still one of us. Yeah, he's one of us and and he was one of us for for a very long time and and yeah, just such a huge figure in and their move in, into full membership and yeah, good luck to him wherever he goes next. I think that's just about. It, fellas, unless there's there's anything else, we'll we'll let uh, poor Tim go to to bed. But so good to be talking to to you guys once again, and, and glad to to have the podcast back up and running again. Uh, we'll have to try and find a, a usual time slot with uh, us in three different time zones in in the coming 
weeks and months with uh, Nick in Iceland, but it's good to see you uh, with some better internet, Nick. I think we can all admit uh, makes recording a, a lot easier. And uh, for everyone else around the world, uh, I hope you've enjoyed the, uh, I suppose, the return of the Emerging Cricket Podcast. It's been a, a week off, but wherever you are catching a podcast, we'll be there every single week, hopefully, wherever you are listening. And yeah, let us know where you are uh, tuning in from. But once again, thanks to, to everyone. Thanks to you two boys. On behalf of Tim, Nick and myself, it's uh, goodbye and enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.